you're so out of control, but also so in tune with your body when you're carrying a baby. It's like the most embodied you've been, but also like things are entirely out of your hands. So the mat really becomes a place where that practice of deep listening begins. The parenting began at conception and just the changes of my body and having to listen to myself in this very real and honest way. And I have to say, like, I think I'm the most honest I've been in 20 plus years of practice because of my motherhood journey. You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to this series of episodes with authors of recently published yoga books. Writing a book is a huge undertaking and definitely a labor of love. I have so much respect and appreciation for the authors featured in this series. The topics covered are wide-ranging and diverse, including self-inquiry, resilience, trauma, teaching skills, tantra, parenting, inversions, meditation, and business. If you love books as much as I do, you'll enjoy a peek behind the scenes on why these yoga teachers felt called to write on their specific topic. And I hope you'll feel inspired to choose a few of them to add to your yoga library. This episode is a conversation with Sarah Ezrin, author of The Yoga of Parenting. Sarah is a regular contributor for Yoga Journal, Motherly, Yoga International, Healthline, and Scary Mommy. Let's begin. I'd love to start with a little bit of your background, how you discovered yoga, and why you decided to start teaching. It was in the form of a gag gift. My dad had bought me, I was turning 19, and he had bought me this whole box of things that were supposed to be like, oh, you're getting older, take care of yourself, which is hilarious now when I'm 41, you know, I'm like, oh, right, at 19. But in it was, you know, it was a VHS, Gonga White and Tracy Rich, Vinyasa Flow. I actually don't even really remember the other contents. There was a lot of different things in there, but obviously... The VHS, which was, you know, supposed to be something silly, ended up being hugely impactful. Me and my college roommate, we would do it in our dorm room all the time. We were hooked from go. And she's actually a yoga teacher now, too. She's been in in the yoga field for as long as I can remember, too. So there was major seeds that were planted from something that was meant to be silly. It, It turned out to be one of my favorite videos. And some of my, you know, it was early vinyasa flow and it kind of directed me into the styles that I was interested in. And yeah, it was one of those like divine, divine experiences, right? I mean, I'm sure I would have wandered into a yoga studio at some point, but not at that point in my life. And to have it arrive at a time where I was not on the best of paths and, you know, not the healthiest. Yeah, it just, it rerouted my life entirely. It's amazing how much of an impact those VHS videos had on a lot of us. Same story here. I mean, I was introduced to yoga in other ways, but I remember practicing along with Rodney Yee in college. And just imagine how many different classes and teachers we have access to now through the internet. At the time, there was just a handful. Yeah. 
You know, there was like Shiva Ray, Rodney Yee, Gungo White and Tracy Rich, and Eric Schiffman had a video. There was just a handful. Rodney was also one of my first VHSs. It was like, the, you know, the, the abs. And then Colleen, she had done an interview about her birth story before I gave birth to my first sons. And, and I am very blessed to have studied with Matis Rathi, you know, who was Shiva and Eric Schiffman's teacher. It, it is really remarkable. People can have such a wide reach in, in those early days. We take it for granted these days, for sure. So tell me more about how doing this yoga started to ripple out and influence your life and change the path that you were on? I was just not on the best of courses. I come from a family of addicts and alcoholics. I've got it on both sides. I had my own foray in, uh, in high school and, and early college, and, and I was on a trajectory that you know was very scary. And I hadn't really ever taken care of myself. I mean, I'd always been interested in movement when I was a kid. I used to do dance, and I loved that. But you know, I mean, the second I got into high school, it was like much more interested in, in partying and, and all of that. Now, I know in retrospect that all of that was avoidance behavior because of my severe anxiety. I just was so uncomfortable in my own body. I was using everything I could to get out of it. So when I started to do yoga and I was like moving in real time and breathing in real time and then you get, you know, the, the yoga high, what have you, you know, from, from movement and endorphins and all the other neurotransmitters that I had been eradicating, you know, very strategically. It, it was my first moment of really being embodied in my life since I think I was a very, very little girl. And it was just profoundly impactful because it was like, it was the first time I didn't need to reach for a cigarette and I didn't need to reach to you know, leave and go and party. It was like I wanted to be in our room. I wanted to be on the mat and I really wanted to be with myself in ways that I had never been before. And then from there, you know, as is the case of, you know, highly anxious A-types, I overcorrected <laughs> and got, you know, way on the other side of things where I started to get really obsessive with it. It was ruling my life. It was coinciding with the beginnings of, of my eating disorder and what had started as this safe place and was still there. And I could see it as the beacon of the safe place you know, started to become a little more dangerous for me. But, you know, as I got into teacher trainings and wanting to offer it to other people and really like hammering home to them, like, no, this is a safe place. Be kind to your body. It was in teaching other people that I was finally able to be the kindest to myself. It was like I got to, I had to go all the way to the other end of the extreme to come back to a place where it was this healthy balance of using my mat as a place of home and nourishment as opposed to, you know, it becoming a place of ambition and uh, punishment at times. And how did becoming a parent change your practice? Well, that's probably like, <laughs> that was probably the biggest catalyst to your, your practice. And I'm curious your experience too. I mean, you're so out of control, but also so in tune with your body when you're carrying a baby, if you have that experience. And it's like amazing. It's like the most embodied you've been, but also like things are entirely out of your hands. So the mat really becomes a place where that practice of deep listening begins. It's like I could override shoulder pain. I could override, you know, being tired. I could ignore those things. And I did for many years. But when you are pregnant 
And, you know, especially my second pregnancy was very challenging pregnancy because I had hyperemesis um, is like you cannot ignore these signals. And it really it just it forces you to be very true to yourself. It's like the truest form of ahimsa that you could practice. Right. It's just showing up to the mat and really listening to yourself in the in the deepest of ways. So I would say that, you know, the parenting began at conception and just the changes of my body and having to listen to myself in this very real and honest way. And then that carried into, you know, the early days of parenting where I tried to force practices and could not because you're so tired. And, you know, here we are four years into my parenting journey or a little bit more if you add in the the pregnancies. And I have to say, like, I think I'm the most honest I've been in 20 plus years of practice because of my motherhood journey. It's very humbling, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. I was like, I if I never do Chaturanga again, and like, let me just like preface this because I know, you know, like I was a diehard Ashtanga practitioner, like die hard, you know, two hours plus every day. I like, it, it's the reason that I was single for as long as I was, you know, I wouldn't go on dates. I wouldn't do, I wouldn't eat certain foods if it affected my leg behind my head. But in the last couple of years, I'm like, I just want to like roll around, like, do like circles and just like, I want it to feel good and, or I want it to be super stabilizing, you know? And, um, but it's, it's really humbling because those early days of grabbing your foot to, you know, the things that you thought were important, it's gone. It'll never, it'll never come back and that's okay. And, um, you know, that part is humbling. I think the ego of it for sure, like seeing old pictures and, you know, or, or remembering the somatic memory of like easily pushing into a posture. But at the same time, you know, when I think of all the things that my body went through and why it is the way that it is, then I'm like, oh no, I'd rather just be kind. Like I would rather lay on two blocks than do Urdhvadhanyarasana and grab my ankles. So from the other perspective, what did you think you knew about parenting before you became a parent? And how did that change when reality hit? I mean, I think I was very honest (laughs) with that. I didn't want kids for a long time. Maybe I did when I was little, but, you know, I lost my mom in my mid-20s. I loved teaching. I I still do. I love teaching yoga. I loved traveling and teaching I loved the excitement and the movement. Now, again, retrospectively, a lot of it was avoiding anxiety, specifically avoiding another significant loss. But, you know, at the same time, I think both can be true, right? I was avoiding, I was avoiding loss and, and avoiding my anxiety, but I enjoyed meeting new people and traveling in new places. But when I met my husband, I'd never changed a diaper. Like I like, you know, spent like 10 minutes at a time with my nieces and nephew. And, you know, it just it was not I knew I didn't know anything. I mean, you know, my sister is, you know, used to be like, you know, kind of secretly judging, you know, screen time and this and that. And I always kept a very open mind because I had no idea. The first diaper I ever changed was my son's (laughs) NICU when he was born even though I did read all these books, I just, I really had no idea. But yeah, it was felt like I just had no idea what was going on and probably why it was so hard. But it sounds like you at least had a clear sense of your own 
abilities as a parent. I think that sometimes people who do have a lot of childcare experience, they had a concept of themselves as a parent that they couldn't live up to because reality didn't mesh with their fantasy of parenting, basically. I don't know if you can know, right, until you're in it. So I'm really glad there's a word for it now, matrescence, you know, which people are talking about, which is that like stepping through the threshold of transitioning from being childless and to, you know, having a child and the complete transformation. You can try to describe it. I can give you the textures. I can tell you the smells, but until you go through it, and it's also because not only is it personal to you as the parent, each child is different. When you have multiple children, you're going through it again and again and again. I mean, I do think we can do a better a better job in this country and in our community at supporting new parents. And rather than having the focus on things like baby showers, you know, which are fun and fabulous, I'm not poo-pooing them by any means, but, you know, let's, let's instead of getting everybody all the coolest gear and the cutest outfits, like, let's channel those resources into postpartum care and setting up meal trains for people. And, you know, instead of spending the money on, you know, and again, like you do what you want with your resources, but, you, you know, I, I wish that I'd taken some of that and with my first son and channeled it into most more postpartum care, you know, and that's what we did with my second. It was like, I don't want, and not that anyone gets you anything anyway. <laughs> it was just like, I, oh, but you know, if they did offer, I, I put it into a pot and, and we got postpartum help. Yeah. I remember even with both children trying so hard to be prepared and then what you end up needing has so little connection to what you thought you were going to need. It's such a yoga practice, right? You got to meet this new little person and pay attention to them and learn from them about what they need. When I was practicing Ashtanga yoga, which is like, you know, memorized for people. And I'm, I know most of your listeners will know, but if people don't know, it's memorized sequences. So you're doing the same poses. You know, there's six sequences in total. But, you know, so for the most part, you're doing the same poses most days is that I would always show up with an expectation that I'm going to get to the, I'm going to make it to, you know, the end or, you know, my back ones were going to feel this particular way that every time I showed up to the mat, I, I had an expectation. And sometimes I would force that into reality, you know, which we all can imagine how that goes, you know, post shoulder surgery and all those things later. But we do it in parenting too. We have these ideas and, and it's okay to have a script. It's okay to have some sort of template in front of you that you've seen with your own parents or, you know, your friends, you know, people that motivate you. But until you're there and in it, you, you know, you just have no idea. And it really is learning in the moment. And, and I think that's what our practice, that's exactly what asana is, if, if we're really being truly present and honest with what we're doing. When we talk about a yoga practice, especially as teachers, we know that there's sort of two sides to the yoga practice. There's the side that's a more formal practice, and then there's the side that you're just doing your best to live out your practice throughout your day. What does your formal or more structured practice look like right now in your life? My daily practice, I so I've been waking up at 4.30 every day because the second is also a very early riser, like 5.30. I mean, he was rising even well before that. He was rising at like 5. Um, but he, we've managed to stretch him a little bit or he's stretching himself. Uh, you feed them a little more at night and then he could, he could sleep a little more. So 
Um, but I'm waking up at 4.30. So I have at least an hour, if not an hour and a half to myself. And then I sit for meditation. I sit for 20 minutes, some kind of writing practice. And then I do a little bit of movement because I'm just getting creakier. So I, I try to do all of that in the morning. I am back to teaching right now, but I also love like there's like a hit class that I go to, like high intensity interval training and or sometimes just long walks with the babes, you know, um, just any kind of movement is, oh, in the class. I love the class too, which is, you know, Taryn Toomey's project out of New York, which is like a moving meditation kind of fitness that's combined with meditation. It's just a wonderful amalgam of a bunch of different styles. So in total, probably about an hour and a half throughout the day, but very much broken up <laughs> to whenever I can get there. And do you avoid screens until you're done with your practice? Is your practice the first thing you do or do you do any screens before that? My screen boundary is that I try not to go on social until after I've meditated. I do sometimes use my phone for meditations. I like Insight Timer. You know, Sarah Blondin is an, is an amazing meditation teacher that I like listening to. But what I've been doing is I have these eye drops because I, <laughs> I run really dry and I have these eye drops that I put in and I like can't see anything, you know, so I put them in before my meditation. So I'm not even tempted to like want to start to scroll and check my email and stuff. But it's not like a set thing. But I really try to not go down the rabbit hole of checking email. Definitely not on social until after in the morning. Like your kids are still super young, but do you have screen time boundaries for them and ideas for like how those might shift and evolve as they get older? Well, I, you know, with my first, I, we were like no screens, like never, you know, uh, then again, he like he was born a couple months before COVID. So, m you know, my hope was to not have him in front of a screen, but then that was the only way we were staying in contact with our family. He would definitely FaceTime with my, you know, m my dad and uh, my husband's mom. But sitting down and watching an actual show, we managed to get through at least the first year. If not, I can't really remember when we did finally sit down to watch Sesame Street. I remember that was the first thing I showed him. But with number two, like he was literally, I, I was, he was like two weeks old and I was, we were watching Stranger Things in the living room because he's your second. Obviously he was not watching it. <laughs> But, you know, it's very different with number two. It's on for my toddler. He's watching a little bit of it. I hate it. I mean, I don't love that he's so exposed to the phone at such an early age. And, and you know, there's times where I really wish I had clearer boundaries. But then there's also times where they're bonding, they're watching something together, or, you know, he's playing quietly and my toddler is watching TV quietly. So, you know, and there's also times where like I need the, the I need the space as well. It's something we're we're paying attention to. I think we we just talked recently about doing like no screens on on weekdays, which which we're discussing. It's hard because my husband's obsessed with sports. There's sports on all the time in my house. Yeah, it's so complicated. You know, screens are such a big part of our lives, and. I do find like this balance of like, okay, I want to set boundaries with my child, but I also don't want to be a hypocrite about it. I use screens all the time. She sees me using screens. So a lot of it for me is like setting boundaries with myself, you know, and trying to like work with it on my own. But yeah, they're so prevalent in our culture that it's 
a bit of an uphill battle to set boundaries around them. We've been really fortunate. First of all, we only have one child in the house right now, so we get to set boundaries just around her needs. And I've noticed that she doesn't do well. It doesn't help her mood to have screens. So we basically do almost no screens. We will do like little short educational videos and we'll look at pictures together and we'll do FaceTime with family and things like that. But part of that too is that she's a huge reader and so she occupies herself reading. So we're like not dependent on the screens for a little downtime. But really what I just wanted to to acknowledge about that is like, that's a privilege, right? I know that not everybody can have the same boundaries around screen time that we have because you, for example, you have your husband, you have two kids that you're navigating. And so we're always in relationship with our children, with our families, and and that's going to impact the boundaries we can have. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you also brought up a really interesting point too. Watching the effect to the after effect of what they're watching, I think is a huge you know, that's another th- barometer for for people when they're making those decisions, too, because I notice when he's watching those faster paces or, you know, he started watching a show that was about ninjas and he was like chopping everything. And I was like, all right, that's it. You know, we're not watching this anymore. Like, we're, it's just interesting because I, I and I write about this in my book, too. Like I talk about desensitizing and resensitizing your nervous systems. And I feel like I'm a highly sensitive person and like I literally had to desensitize my nervous system to watch certain content because that's what the other kids were watching, Um, specifically like scary movies and, you know, really intense suspense stuff, you know, which, you know, even now I can I can't watch certain shows before bed because I feel how amped up I am. So I think giving them that language, letting them pay attention to that, too, and as parents, that we can hold the container to ask the questions, you know, how do you feel after you watch this? You know, what's coming up for you? Notice how you're really excitable right now. You know, okay, this one leaves you, you know, this is educational and you're also a little more chill afterwards. Like how wonderful to empower them to pay attention in that way. I think it also extrapolates to other areas of life because part of the challenge with screens is that they're addictive. They release dopamine in our system, and then we want more, basically. So that's the mechanism for addiction or or part of it. And there are other things like sweet foods, conversations around eating, and around navigating, okay, my responsibility as your parent is to make sure that you have access to a wide variety of healthy foods and that you regulate some of those addictive tendencies, which we all have, some of us to greater degrees than others, um, without like instilling fear or creating power struggles or disordered eating, right? I think that's a big topic of conversation. I think it's a big question for parents is like how to do this because it's super normal for children and humans to be attracted to very simple refined foods. That is normal. That is what sets off the pleasure centers in our brain. And yet, if that's all we're eating, (laughs) 
it leads to some really serious consequences down the road. Specifically, diabetes is kind of the, the biggest one. And so as parents, it's a delicate, it's a delicate role to play. It's very similar to when we're teaching yoga. Like we're creating a container for them to get to know themselves more deeply. Now, obviously, like when they're super young, you are, you know, you're providing so much of those ingredients and, and whether that's the actual food that's being served, <laughs> you know, but as they get older, it's always about being that container and that mirror so that they are aware of the choices that they need to make for themselves. Because when someone overeats and then you ask them, like, how do you feel? Well, I don't feel very good. I feel a little bit out of control in my body. I feel really low the next day or, you know, whatever the effects may be. But I think it's the empowering piece that's so important. We are the container. We provide the menu. We provide the limit setting. No, sorry, you can't really have the chocolate chip cookie at 9 a.m., whatever you decide in your home. But it's empowering the kid to see how they feel on the other side of those choices. Because something that was really interesting, I have a history in, in, in my eating disorder, is that when I watched my sons in their early feeding days, when you start to feed them solids, there's an intuition there that's like remarkable. When you leave them the space, even at those early ages, like I'm talking six months, you know, six to nine months, they know their bodies in a really profound way. And what an opportunity you know, the eating conversation, the sleeping conversation, that if you make them inquiries, obviously, again, you set the limits. This isn't just like a free for all. But if you make these about inquiries and curiosity and you step back a little bit, they tend to really make the right choices. Yeah, I agree that framing the conversation and asking the right questions and helping them pay attention to the signals of their bodies is much more important than, you know, a specific meal. I mean, not every meal is going to be perfectly balanced. Not every meal is going to be perfectly healthy. I think the, the biggest gift we can give them is an invitation to notice the signals from their body and to act on that and start to feel empowered to make, make good choices. Toddlers mm -hmm. tend to get very picky and again, are, are just attracted to foods that are extremely refined, which is makes a lot of sense in evolutionary terms, you know, why they're attracted to what they're attracted to. The problem is that the environment we live in is not at all similar to the environment that our ancestors evolved in. And so, you know, those sweet, smooth foods that were so high value to our ancestors are like way too abundant for us. It's fascinating to watch the evolution over time. And it's really comforting as somebody who now has a 20-year-old to be able to look at my almost eight-year-old and say, you'll grow out of that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like to, to just broaden the lens a little bit and say, yeah, I can let go of that for today. That's not gonna, that's not gonna carry through. I trust that. I mean, I definitely think that's one of the gifts of the second child, you know, if you're able is that you really do learn how temporary everything is, because when with your first, you're convinced that this is this is it and it's always going to be this way and nothing's ever going to change and they're never going to sleep and, the, you know, they're, they're never going to eat again. And, <laughs> and then as time goes on and, you know, even in those phases that feel like they're going on forever, you know, as they say, right, the days are long and the, the years are short. 
retrospectively, you get to start to look back and you're like, wow, you know, no, it was always changing. It was always evolving. Um, And that really helped, at least with my second, um, you know, it helped me treat it with a little bit more care and privilege because I realized how fleeting it is. It's like, I'm really in a hurry for him to walk, you know, I'm not really in a hurry to stop breastfeeding. Like, I, I want to lengthen these experiences as as best I can for as long as I can. So you have been teaching yoga for a really long time and then you became a parent and you decided to write this book on how the two your two worlds interact. Can you tell me a little bit more about what inspired you to write this and who you wrote it for? I mean Full disclosure, I think I kind of wrote it for myself, <laughs> you know. Um, what inspired me was that, you know, not having any experience with with kids, not really been exposed to them. I read a million books and, you know, continued to read in the early days of my son in those early postpartum days. And so many of those books that I was reading, they just made me feel awful, really. They made me feel like I was doing everything wrong. And if I didn't do this exact script, it wasn't what I was seeking, which was, you know, kindness and permission and a space and a container, much like what we were saying with our children, the container, you know, as the parent to have these experiences and to figure things out on your own. There's great books on mindful parenting, like Hunter Clark Fields and, you know, John Kabat-Zinn. Like, those are all amazing. But I just, I was like, but wait, where's where's the yogic perspective? You know, that's all Buddhism um, and, and mindfulness. And so I, you know, thought, okay, well, maybe this is the time to create this. And it's not like just my my information. It's actually wisdom that I've I've cold from all over, whether it's yogic texts or modern philosophy and and psychology, but it's also a ton of interviews. It's a ton, a ton, a ton of interviews of all different parents, all different identities, all different, you know, from all around the world, because I I figured if I talked to enough people that were different enough that we would see, you know, at the end of the day, okay, there's no one path, but we all have the same intention, which is connection. So, how do we give ourselves permission to be on the path that we need to be? And, you know, that's by seeing all these other people take all these different paths, but all of us coming to that same pinnacle, which is, you know, deeper love and connection. If you could whisper in your own ear to the version of Sarah who just had her first child, what would you say? I love that question. It's so beautiful. The mantra that that has gotten me through <laughs> number two and that I try to share with others, but again, you don't know it till you're in it, which is like, it's all temporary. And I mean that in the best of ways and I mean it in the worst of ways. Like it's all temporary. So, you know, and not enjoy every moment because, you, you know, that's impossible and nor, nor do we want them to, right? It's not about toxic positivity. It's, it's, it's all temporary. So there is beauty and fleetingness to this moment, but it's also, it's all temporary. So the discomfort will pass. It will pass. And you just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, opening your eyes and feeding another bottle and changing another diaper. And it's all temporary. So true. If listeners want to buy your book or find out more about your work, where should they go? You know, my website is a great way to connect with me or my Instagram, Sarah Ezrin Yoga. And to buy the book, you can buy it anywhere. Anywhere books are sold, you know, support local bookstores. You can go on IndieBound and, and find any of your local bookstores. It should, it should just automatically populate in your area. 
of course, you know, Barnes and Noble and Amazon and all the huge, but just look up the yoga of parenting and it will come up in all the places. There's an audio version I would like to share. There was a negotiation that there was almost not an audio version. I was like, no, please, please for parents. Like we need the audio version. So that is also available on Audible, which is really exciting. Well, thank you for sharing this compilation of wisdom from the yoga perspective on parenting and for keeping it real. Thank you for having me. I loved our talk. Like this was totally, like there were questions I had not been asked before. And, you know, you always ask the most interesting questions. And really, I love what you're able to pull out of all of us. Cause like, I feel like I've like grown and expanded just in the 40 minutes we got to chat, you know, and which is how I feel when I listen to your podcast as well. So thank you so much. This episode is part of a series with authors of recently published yoga books. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the series by looking above or below this episode in your podcast player.